Hello and welcome to episode 71 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C., uh, the lovely home of our political capital and <laughs> Jesus <laughs> um, theatrics. So uh, with me, as always, Nathan Fox. How's it going? Good, man. I'm in Los Angeles. I've been traveling a ton. I was up in Petaluma. I was in Granite Bay. I was in Pacific Grove, Monterey. I just got back uh, last night to Los Angeles. Mostly I've avoided watching. I did watch the first presidential debate, which was comedy, I thought. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I didn't end up seeing it. There was a class going on and around uh, nine or something, about five students left, I think, to go see it. They told me they they just had to go see it. So I thought Trump won. Can I tell you why? Uh, Tell me why, yeah. I mean, the pundits totally disagreed, and I don't know anything about politics, so you know, I'm sure they're right. And <laughs> Hillary seems to get a bounce from it and everything. But um, yeah, well, I just figured if you are an undecided voter at this point, you're probably a dumbass. And mm-hmm. Trump's message plays very well to dumbasses because he just says his conclusions without any evidence at all. Mm-hmm. Right? Hillary yeah. tries to make rational arguments and when you try to make a rational argument like with an evidence and with evidence and a conclusion then people can object but trump just says i'm gonna fix everything period yeah and that's it and i feel i feel like if you're an idiot that would be a really good like a really sense like that's oh that sounds awesome this guy's great yeah but i don't know i i guess it's more complicated than that that the pundits get to declare who wins, and then that actually influences the undecided voters. Because the undecided voters probably weren't even watching the debate. Well, I think some of the points that the pundits were making, which goes to what I think you're saying, and that is that a lot of people make decisions not based on the rationale of the argument or whether it sounds legit or not, but how they feel about that person. And I think they were saying that by losing his cool in a lot of situations – uh, that sent a message that was not ideal. And so a lot of people are making judgments just based on that, huh. like his facial expressions and things like that. The other thing, too, is if you just look at the amount of time that's spent talking on negative things, such as his taxes or <laughs> I don't even remember, like he's made so many crazy claims, but <laughs> just birtherism, stuff like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like the more time you spend talking about it, it doesn't matter who's like, like if he wins that point or loses, the fact that you're talking about it just brings it up and people leave with that sort of like idea. And you don't want them leaving with that idea. You want them leaving with a different idea, you know? Uh-huh. And so I think you're exactly right. It's not, it's not about the soundness of the argument. Yeah. I just can't wait for this to be over. It's so dumb. It's it's. Pretty crazy. And it's surprising, actually, how poorly Hillary is doing going against someone like Trump. You know, I think that just reveals how weak both candidates are. They both seem to have lots of problems from their past that are hard to get rid of. Yeah, they're like the two most hated people in America. (laughs) We're going to pick one of them to be our president. It's awesome. It's a bummer that that's like the system, how the system works or whatever, you know? Yeah, I... uh... Boy, why why do we have to make it last so long? I don't know. It's a rat race, don't you think? And everybody's just trying to go longer and longer and longer. It's kind of like uh, 
what is it? Christmas. All, Christmas. Yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. sooner and sooner. Like, okay, come on, we haven't even had turkey yet. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, it must be ten times worse in D- in DC, I imagine. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, politics is a big topic here. A lot of people work on the hill. A lot of people, even if they're not working on the hill, they're working for contractors, government contractors, and. It's part of everyday life. What is interesting to me is it's kind of normal now to talk about this stuff all the time. And so when I go somewhere else and there's some political scandal that's been all over the papers here or in Politico or whatever these, you know, these local news organizations and I go somewhere else and I start talking about it and people are like, yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about. And just being, oh, yeah, I guess that's, you know, it is really stupid. And everybody, <laughs> no one else in the world cares about it. So, well, it's like talking about the NFL to people that don't watch football. Yeah. You know, like for people who watch the NFL, it's the most important thing in the world. And for people who are all into politics like that, it's basically just the NFL. I mean, that's how it seems to me. It's like NFL for like a different class of people. Yeah. And you're just like rooting for, you know, the red team or the blue team. Mm-hmm. And it's not really that big of a, I don't know, from the outside, it's like, who gives a shit <laughs> which which team, the red team or the blue team wins. I mean, I know it's allegedly makes all these big changes in the world, but who knows? You know, I always think about, well, according to half of the nation, we have lived through the worst president ever, like five times in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. there's people who are convinced that George W. Bush was the worst president ever, and then the rest of the country believes that Obama is the worst president ever. Yeah. So okay, great. <laughs> and meanwhile, I don't know. My life just keeps getting better and better. Things just seem to be getting nicer and better and safer and cleaner, and <laughs> we're all getting richer. Like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I don't know how bad these people <laughs> really could possibly be. Yeah, it's yeah, it's crazy. I'm I'm just surprised. Uh, I mean, revealing my political stripes too much here maybe but i'm just surprised how many people support trump and you know you'd always expect there to be some segment of the population but i don't know he still has a a large uh, sum of people and a lot of those people are educated i i don't get it i mean he's just he's kind of crazy they're not educated. You got to come to my hometown. I mean, the I see Oh, I Trump- think a lot of people aren't, but I think I'm I'm surprised in this area who is behind Trump and says things like, "Well, he didn't really mean that." I think it's kind of like Pence in this debate that I guess happened last night saying a lot of times that, you know, Trump didn't exactly say that and it's like, "Yeah, he did." And he said it <laughs> yeah. that badly, you know. He, he <laughs> yes, exactly he what he said. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He said that people who have PTSD are weak. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's insane. I just don't understand how, like, this isn't, I mean, it pretty much already is over. But it's surprising to me that there's still that many people supporting him. Yeah, well, seems like, uh, one way or the other, we're going to be done with it in another month, five weeks, six weeks? God. Something like, yeah, a month. It, today's the fifth, so we have a, another month and it'll be over. Well, hopefully we'll get some more good laughs out of it. I mean, I, I, if I watched the first debate with some friends, uh, my buddy Mike and his mom, and uh, it was pretty hilarious to just have a couple of cocktails and sit there and yell at the TV for a little while. So, <laughs> kind of fun. Yeah, good interaction. Yeah. 
Cool. Well, today uh, we have a lot of stuff uh, to talk about in terms of the September LSAT that just happened. Um, some interesting stories. Then uh, an update on whether or not the LSAT is going to become a digital test or not. And then, of course, questions from you all, uh, all our listeners. Thank you very much. And we'll, we'll dive into those. So I wanted to make a little plug for a couple of weekend classes that I just recently posted to my website. Sure. Um, if you just bear with me for one second. It's um, yeah. Saturday, October 22nd, and Sunday, October 23rd. I'm doing mm-hmm. an LSAT boot camp in Los Angeles. Uh, it's actually mm-hmm. in Glendale, but it's uh, a boot camp from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., on Saturday the 22nd and Sunday the 23rd of October. That's in Los Angeles. And um, I will be doing, uh, among other things, I'm going to be doing uh, Prep Test 79, which is the September 2016 LSAT. Whether you're just starting off with your LSAT prep or you actually took the September 2016 test, um, I think Hmm. that that class will be a worthwhile use of your time. You know, if you're you're re-studying re-preparing for a retake in December, you know, you absolutely need to start by reviewing that test that you just bombed (laughs) December or the September 2016 test. So there's that class. And then there's one more uh, boot camp. I'm actually doing the same thing, but in San Francisco, and that is on October 29th and 30th. Same thing, um, 10 to 5 on Saturday and Sunday, the 29th and 30th in San Francisco and the 22nd and 23rd in Los Angeles. Okay, that's the end of my commercial. No, that's that's great. Thanks for the commercial break. Do you build these as LSAT classes or weekends with Nathan Fox? Um, it's a special weekend with Nathan <laughs> Fox. I encourage people to come from out of town and make a big vacation of it and yeah. uh, and hang out and do the weekend class. But no, they are, they are uh, really fun. People do, actually. It's kind of crazy. People come from all over the place. Um, like they'll, you know, come from Las Vegas and stay in town for the weekend. And they do like an Airbnb or something? Yeah. Stay in a hotel downtown. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So yeah, those are on my website if anybody wants to sign up. Should we jump into the September test? Yeah, I think we could talk about the September test. Okay. Well, I have, I do have a couple of stories that I don't know if they're relevant at all, but they did surprise me a little bit. I had one student who uh, got a test violation for going a second over on the writing portion. Wow. So they said, stop. He like finished the word and put his pencil down, and they're like, come here. And he thought there was some confusion about something or whatever. And then they're like, oh, we're giving you a violation Ouch. going over on the writing sample. And he was a little nervous about that and what that meant. And mm. I'm not exactly sure how they indicate a violation on your score report. I think they put like a V, but I don't know if they elaborate on that. Uh, do you know? I do not know. Um, maybe a listener will uh, email us and we can give an update on the next show. Uh, I always thought that it was like a canceled score and uh, some sort of a notation on your record. Do you know if they're going to cancel his score or if he's going to get his score? No, I don't know that, and he he didn't know either. Although I think he was under the impression that he would keep his score. I'm I'm assuming that he would. It feels like there's got to be a range of violations. Well, right? the writing sample has nothing to do with your 120 to 180 LSAT score, so why would it matter, right? I mean, his score is still his score. Yeah, 
that he went over on the writing sample. Also, dude, why are you going over on the writing sample? Well, that's the thing. And I think he was saying that it wasn't really bullshit going over. It was like a second. It, bullshit. it was, I don't care. Bullshit. Just come on. What are you doing? It, the writing sample is so easy. And it doesn't matter. You don't need to like, you know, there is no such, you don't really need to finish it or anything, right? I mean, when the proctor says five minutes, you say, for the above reasons, the Rodriguez's should send Anya to school A, period. Yeah, I agree. So you're saying at the five minute time, just end it. At the five minute warning, you just end it and then you reread it and edit it and all that stuff. So what's he frantically writing at the, I don't know, that to me indicates like bad overall test mojo, like just not quite, you know, being just being so hectic and so frantic about the writing sample that you're going to be writing all the way through the end of the 35 minutes. I mean, even if it is only one second, I'm not saying he lied. I'm just saying if it's one second, that's about three minutes too much. Yeah, you you should be you get the five minute warning, wrap up your idea, your sentence, so that it ends on a, a good note and then be done. Yeah, you finish the sentence you're writing and then you say, it's super formulaic, right? I mean, I would think the last sentence of everyone's writing sample could basically be, for the above reasons, they should do this. Period. Yeah, if, if you even need to say that. I mean, I tell people to write the first sentence uh, as their main point, like they should do this or they should do that. And so your main idea has already been... You yeah, know, well, I clearly say clearly stated. I say clear, yeah, clearly stated in the first sentence and clearly stated in the last sentence. Just mm-hmm. because like, hey, I'm following the directions. And, you know, this is my it's just a one sentence wrap up conclusion. I mean, yeah, I guess you yeah. don't really necessarily need it, but it's a nice way to just tie it up for people who feel like, oh, I have to have some sort of a conclusion. Sure. For the above reasons, this is what they should do. Boom. Yep. And then that's it. And then you should be editing and rereading and making sure that the spelling is okay and that your handwriting is you know, legible or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you shouldn't be frantically trying to finish up that essay at the end of... <laughs> you, just, you don't need to say all the things. You just need to make a bunch of points and, and then wrap it up. That's it. Yeah. I think uh, looking forward in his case, and if this ever happens to anyone, I would consider the seriousness of the violation. And I mean, he's going to have to write an addendum, but I can't imagine this being that serious to law schools. So I think it's normal to freak out in these situations. But I mean, (laughs) any reasonable admissions reviewer how seriously are they going to take a one second over you know a few Mm -hmm. seconds over whatever it was on the writing sample i would just unfortunately he he if he writes an addendum that comes off at all like confrontational or you know this isn't fair or whatever Mm -hmm. then i feel like that's gonna he's gonna flag himself as like a problem student maybe yeah oh i agree you have to you have to strike the right tone you have to strike the tone that you screwed up but yeah. at the same time, I think you do need to get that message there so that they know exactly what the violation was for. I'm assuming LSAC will tell them in some way because there are so many different kinds of violations. But you'd want to write that addendum and make it clear what happened so that no one misses that. Yeah. Right. right. Well, let's make sure to get an update on this uh, when the scores are out. I, by the time we record the next episode, uh, scores will be out and we should be able to find out from him 
what his score report looks like, right? And yeah. if, if that violation's on there, and if it if it I, it better specifically flag it that it was a violation on the writing sample and not a violation on the the one twenty to one eighty score. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I mean, I think you got to take those uh, <laughs> those things pretty seriously. Yeah. Right. Like the that's the the rules are the rules, and when they say time's up, you should be putting your pencil down. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had the student who got busted for darkening in her bubbles after time had been called. I've probably told that story a million times on the show. But you know, it's just why are you so frantic? What are you doing? Why <laughs> thirty five minutes should be enough? Yeah. That's how much time you get. You don't get more than thirty five minutes. Anyway, sorry to bust your students' balls there, but. Oh, no. I, I mean, I think you make a good point about ending the writing sample. You should be ending it early. So yeah. I, I think it's a fair point. Uh, in terms of, uh, I have another good story actually about proctors before we go on. There was one uh, student who uh, was in a room and the proctor called time at three minutes. And it's like, okay, um, not ideal, obviously, but they told them that they had three minutes and everybody kind of looked up and was like, okay. And they finished that section. And in the next section, I guess the proctors, um, out of fear of making a mistake again, jumped the gun and at 10 minutes told them that they had five. Wait, this is, I've heard this twice now. This happened last time as well. Th- this happened on the June test. Oh, really? I don't remember that from the June test. On the, well, so I had a student on the June test, I think this was in Chicago, that, the, that uh, the proctors called five minutes when there was actually 10 minutes left. Mm. Everyone in the room freaked out and said, no, no, there's 10 minutes left. And the proctor said, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Then the proctor proceeded to not give them a five-minute warning mm-hmm. in that same section and just call times up. <laughs> and then everyone freaked out, hey, wait a minute, you're supposed to give us a five-minute warning. Yeah, And then that proctor decided, oh, okay, well, I'm going to give everybody two more minutes so that you can wrap up. <laughs> that happened on the June That'd test. That'd be glorious. Yeah, my student who was there was like, sweet, and got like answered another question or two. Yeah. Uh, so this is, a, but this is, again, a proctor jumping the gun and saying five minutes when there's actually 10 left. I assume everyone in the room freaks out when that happens, right? Yeah, and says, well, no, no, no. No one said anything, apparently. So there was this sort of collective. I mean, this is all you know, group group psychology. I don't know, yeah, but right. in this particular case, they didn't. Everyone looked up. Like there was, I think there was like skepticism, but no one said anything. And wow. so my student thought that she well, she didn't. You know, she didn't know. I guess she didn't have a watch or something. So I, I think, if I remember correctly, but she was like, "Well, maybe this is the five minute thing." So she thought, wow, I'm, I have a lot more to do than I normally do at five minutes. So unfortunately, she rushed, in which yes. case you shouldn't, right? You, But I think it was kind of a panic, too, because this is not normally where she'd be at in five minutes. <sighs> and then at the actual five minutes, the other proctor said five minutes. <laughs> and at that point, everybody was like, what? And so... Uh, they had five more minutes, and then it was over. But that those last ten minutes for most people in the room, at least from her perspective, were sort of you know a, a, a slate of confusion and and wow. rushed, wow. rushed questions. So, anyway, something to watch out for, and it's a it's one reason to consider bringing a watch. I know you're a big opponent of that, but I think that 
Uh, I like I prefer to have a watch because I like to keep track of my time. I think that if a watch messes you up because you keep looking at it, you still shouldn't bring it. But if if you're on the fence with that, it's not something that's a distraction. I would say, hey, take control of the time, and then you know what's going on. Yeah, I guess that 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 seems like a crazily passive group of uh, of of law LSAS students, right? I mean, I would assume, man, if I ever did that, my kids would yell at me. They would bite my head off if I was like. If I said five minutes when there was actually 10 minutes left, I feel like my students would be like, no. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I don't know. That's even though I'm always yelling at them about not bringing a watch, they still have their watch. They're still doing it. Like they can't, they're type A, you know, they can't, they can't yeah. not do it. So they're, they would still, boy, I'm, I'm amazed that a whole room at the actual LSAT and a whole room of people didn't say, mm, no, there's actually 10 minutes left. I'm sure some people had to know that. That's weird. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, maybe the ones who knew were just like, eh, whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really matter. We just matter. keep going exactly, and uh, right. yeah. ignore it. I'm in the zone. I'm working on this question. Like, who cares how much time is left? I'm working on this question. That's actually how you should really be feeling, right? You should be, ideally, you should be like, the proctors can say whatever they want. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just going to work on this question right here and get it right. That's what I'm yeah. doing. Yeah. Last one was a student had some, the proctor come sit next to them and start reading a magazine, <laughs> a fashion magazine, uh, to be precise. That, that is awesome. Yeah, we've heard some recent like, comedy from the te- from the test proctors. Um, proctors having a conversation in the front of the room. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, even like whispering, which is almost more annoying than just talking yeah. out loud. Yeah. But, um, whispered conversation and this one yeah boy sitting right next to the student and paging through a magazine wow <laughs> wow uh, we've talked about proctors who have talked on the phone maybe yeah yeah mm-hmm. so apparently have you heard about these studies that's like way worse than hearing a conversation because when you only hear half your mind desperately tries to <laughs> fill in the other side. Yeah, gain coherence and understanding, <laughs> and so it takes a lot more uh, mental effort and distracts people more. It's tough. It's stuff you have wow. to kind of just force yourself to ignore. And I've said it before focus. on the show, but uh, LSAT proctors, you need to get your shit together. No kidding. I think they just don't care. A lot of them don't even know what the heck is going on. No. You know. Well, that's I mean, why they're proctoring. Unfortunately. <laughs> Think about that job, right? I mean, they're they're they get paid four da- four days a year to sit there and run a stopwatch for three hours. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not exactly a high powered kind of a job, right? It's nobody's full time job, so it's just a bunch of whatever campus employees trying to pick up a little extra cash on the side and that that sort of thing, right? Yeah, is the people that are doing the proctoring, but still, it seems like they should have pretty strict instructions. As crazy as the LSAC is with all of their strict instructions that they give the students, it seems like they could give the proctors some very basic instructions, like yeah. stop annoying the students in the room. Yeah, um, It's about them, not about you. So don't be on the phone and having a conversation and reading a fashion magazine and <laughs> fucking up the time. <laughs> you had one job, which was to run the time, you know, and not, and not uh, like... You're supposed to keep the room quiet and, okay, two jobs. Keep the room quiet and run the stopwatch. You know what they should do is they should freaking automate this. They should just give all their proctors a stupid little 
app that they push play. Yeah. And it says like turn to section one. Yeah. And then <laughs> well, soon does it all for them. It'll be like auto drive car. There won't even be a proctor. They'll just be like proctor bot. I I feel like you still need a proctor, right? To like enforce the rules. Someone watching, walking around. I'm thinking like the Terminator. Oh yeah, totally worth it. <laughs> <laughs> We've got <laughs> yeah, that would be cool. Well, I I mean, it just doesn't seem that hard to create an app that would just do everything for them. You know? Agreed. Agreed. And then they yeah. could pause it and emer- have a red button emergency situation. Agreed. Well, hey, that that uh, segues into one of our uh, topics that we were going to talk about, right? Oh, it does. I don't. Which one? The digital LSAT or yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all going to be. It is going to be obviated if they go to the digital LSAT, right? Oh, there's an LSAT word. Or there's a law school word for you. Obviated, folks. Yeah, it means made redundant or made unnecessary. Yeah. I remember in law school debating whether obviate the need was a <laughs> redundant sentence or phrase. Obviate the need for or something like that. Yeah. And just say, yeah. instead, just say obviate. I would prefer just obviate. Yeah. Anyway, so the digital LSAT, let me actually read this from LSAC. So this is December, the December 2004 LSAT newsletter this is lsac report newsletter of the law school admission council which i had no idea existed um but it's still entertaining to read this it says digital lsat this is a random uh side note in the margin uh on page five of the december 2014 report which is right next to an update by the way on lsat india in any case it says lsac is conducting research involving LSAT delivery options for the future. We are studying the feasibility of a tablet-based LSAT administration system which will likely be field-tested sometime in 2015. Duh, didn't happen, right? I don't know. As far as we I never know. heard of it. Yeah. No decision has been made regarding future implementation of such a system. In the 1990s, LSAT began researching the potential for electric, electronic delivery of the test. Why can't they just talk normal? <laughs> and this is a continuation of those efforts. So they've been looking into this for the past two and a half decades and no progress as of yet. But, you know, they really need to do this. The test would be shorter if they did this. Correct. Because they wouldn't have to throw every question at you. They could just see your difficulty level. It would be adaptive, right? You would figure out what your skill is and then zero in on that difficulty level and figure out exactly how good you are or not good you are at these kinds of questions. Yeah, the GRE and the GMAT both already do this. Mm -hmm. Um, It's awesome. You go sit in front of a computer screen. You go The GRE and the GMAT, you can both go to just random like testing centers. When I took the GMAT, I think it was, yeah, I like scheduled myself an appointment at a time and place that was convenient for me. And I rolled in and I sat down in front of a computer screen and it like the, the proctor guy or whoever was there running the facility. Yeah. Um, loads up the like, Oh, you're here to take the, what is it? GMAT. Oh, okay. Yeah. And puts the GMAT program and it comes through the computer screen 
mm-hmm. and you just start doing questions. And um, yeah, it starts you with an average difficulty question. And if you get it right, then you get a point and it gives you a slightly harder question. Mm-hmm. If you get it wrong, then you don't get a point and it asks you a slightly lower difficulty question. Yep. And in that way, they can ask you far less questions because if you start getting them all right, then you quickly get into the hardest questions. And if you get the hardest questions right, then they're like, oh, you know what you're doing and they give you a good score. Yep. And if you miss the average one and then you miss an easier one and then you miss another easier one, then they quickly narrow in on, well, you suck at this. And uh, then you get a lower score. Mm-hmm. And so I want to say that, yeah, the GMAT was maybe like two, something like 75 minute. No, no, it had to be less than that. It, anyway, it was, it was nothing. And it, and it certainly wasn't like this big stressful thing of, you know, an hour for registration and all the complicated instructions and the passing out of the papers and the recollecting of the papers and all that stuff just didn't even have to happen. Oh, and by the way, at the very end, it was like, would you like to see your score? Yes or no? <laughs> and you click yes, and it's like immediately, bang, there's your score. Yeah. I think it's funny that they're talking about the, quote, feasibility of a tablet-based LSAT administration. I It sounds to me like they're still imagining this as a test in which everyone goes to a place, they're given a tablet, and then they take the test, as opposed to piggybacking off of the centers that have already been set up for the GMAT and the GRE. And that's what they should do. Sure, except if you had a billion-dollar business administering tests. Yeah. Right? Then you might decide, and, and a monopoly. Yeah. Then why would you just give that all I mean you could still charge whatever you wanted for the test I suppose but yeah I don't know it seems like you could get more people in taking it because they could take it you could say take it every four weeks or something and you know I don't know what's the GMAT the GRE and the GMAT are like continuously just you can take it whenever you want I mean I don't think you can take it two days in a row but you can take it any day that those testing centers are open, which is like every day, you can just sign up. Like you make an appointment for yourself a week or 10 days in advance. It'd be so much easier for students to prepare for because they could just get, you know, they do do a bunch of, obviously still do a bunch of practice. Yep. They just get good at the test. But then once you're ready, then you could sign up for the test. Yeah. The way the LSAC does it, you have to sign up a month in advance or more, you know, and it's only offered four times a year. So you have to like make a plan in advance for when you're going to take the test. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, I mean, it's so much more civilized for the GRE and the GMAT, I think. Yeah, that's what I was thinking is like you, you could take it at any time. And so it seems like people would take it more maybe. I don't know. But maybe they wouldn't be able to charge so much for it or something or I don't know. Yeah. Maybe they're just a bunch of lawyers and lawyers don't do anything quickly. I think that's got to be a big part of this. I mean, they get sued right and left, right? Yeah. If they started thinking about this in the 90s and we're still talking about it. Maybe it's actually the student's fault because they're all such litigious people, right? These are all people who are going to go to law school. Mm -hmm. So there is quite a bit of like entitlement and just, you know, I'm going to stand up for my rights. So people end up suing the LSAC all the time. So then the LSAC ends up having to be like defense defense mode anytime they want to make any changes to the test. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That could be part of it. 
anyway, I hope it does happen. I think it would be cool for the test to change and to, I mean, it's got to happen at some point, I feel like. It's, you know, it's, it, what, 2020? We're going to still be doing this on paper? Sure seems inevitable. I mean, but if we had to bet whether it's going to happen before 2020, <sighs> I don't know about that. I don't know about that either. <laughs> they have, what have they done? The, t- the changes that they've made to the test, in 2007, they added the comparative reading. Mm-hmm. That was that was ten years ago now, almost ten years ago now. Yeah. And so I mean, the t- it just the test just doesn't it doesn't change. So yeah, hopefully they'll do it. I think it'll make everybody's life easier. Yeah. Hey, so one thing uh, about the test, a couple other things to talk about is uh, first accommodated students. Did mm. we find out whether they had the experimental section or not? They did. did they did. You know if any double time students had the experimental section? Um, I know. I I heard from one um, unhappy, accommodated student who sat down at the test, and there were five sections, and she she said she did the the way it went down because she wasn't expecting it. The way it went down was uh, she didn't. She, she thought that the proctor had made an error because the proctor didn't know which of the five sections was experimental. Yeah. And because, yeah, one of them was experimental, but uh, no, the proctor wasn't supposed to know because accommodated students, as far as I know, accommodated students now have to take uh, the experimental section. But I think that she was only a time and a half student. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, she, like, I think, melted down on the whole test because of that, because mm-hmm. it was just so confusing and she couldn't wrap her mind around it. I mean, the truth is it's only an additional 47 and a half minutes or what? No, not 47 and a half. 53 and a half or something. Yeah. yeah. 53 and a half minutes. Oh, they just give you 53, but yeah. Oh, 53. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not time and a half. Is that more than time and a half? I think it is. Let's see here. So 35 times... <laughs> Yeah, it's 52.5, and so they're giving you 53. They're giving you 30 extra seconds. Maybe extra 30 seconds. Ah, you're already Woo! getting extra time. You might as well just get more <laughs> extra time. Yeah, so it's too bad. I mean, I feel bad for her, that, but she, she freaked out, I guess, and it sort of she couldn't get it out of her head, so she like choked, I think, on the rest of the test. One of many ways that people choke on the test. Yeah, so I had a double-time student who gave me an email I should just follow up with him but he gave me an email right before the test and that's the one we had exchanged emails about which said I mean it was very cryptic and legal defensive writing Mm -hmm. you know but it basically said all students and I took that from logical reasoning to mean every single one including accommodated students would now be doing the quote variable section that's what they call it so maybe even double time students are doing five sections. I have to say, I mean, I know you you said you think that's ridiculous or whatever, but I can't get my head around the idea that accommodated students should be doing less work on the day of the test. It just and not also not having the mental game of, hey, I had two game sections, which one was experimental. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's fair that accommodated students didn't have that. I, I just, I, I, they, I can't, 
I don't think I'm ever going to wrap my head around the idea of accommodated students getting to do less reading on yeah. the day of the test. How, how yeah. is that fair, man? That, that can't possibly be fair. So, and I, I know what you mean that, oh, shit, well, that's going to be a very long day now for the accommodated students. Yeah, well, the test alone would take about just shy of six hours plus a break plus instructions. Yeah, well, you know what? There's an easy solution to that. Don't get accommodations and just take it the way everybody else takes it. <laughs> you know, like what? Yeah, but then we get back want? into the whole issue of like, are these legit or not? Right? Do and you just some want cases three points, not. or what the fuck do you want? I don't know. I'm, I, I'm, <laughs> it, it, it just. I know that some students have a legitimate need for accommodations, but there are. It seems to me students who just aren't happy with their score, want a higher score, are going to get accommodations for it, and. Mm. I, I am, um, I'm fully on board and, you know, maybe they should have made a bigger announcement of it though. Right. <laughs> like it should have... Well, at least not such a cryptic one. And this is after that guy got that email after he asked them explicitly, would he have an experimental section? And they wrote back this like, you know, essay instead of just saying yes. Yeah. It's weird. I, I don't understand. I think they're, they, they took the position we never told anyone they wouldn't have an experimental section. So the fact that they've never got it in the past and might learn from previous <laughs> students. What a bunch of dicks. Oh, my <laughs> God. That is just the worst. That's the worst aspect of lawyers. You know? Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm not obligated to give you a straight answer, so I'm not going to. <laughs> what I literally said is true. <laughs> What I said was defensible, legally defensible. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Okay, well, it seems like ex uh, accommodated students, you need to uh, expect that you're going to have to do the same amount of work as everyone else on the day of the test now. And, it, you know, they, it, I, it went along with the fact that there's no asterisk on the score report anymore, right? It used to say, before the lawsuit, it used to say, hey, the student got accommodations. And yeah. now they've lost that lawsuit, and so the, the, there is no asterisk on the score report anymore. But now the LSAC is like, oh, well, good, you're going to have to do the experimental section at least then. Yeah. Um, I, I imagine the LSAC must hate the, the accommodations thing, right? They, they got sued and lost and had to change all their shit, and they must hate it. I think, well, they have to accommodate more people now, and they have to, um, they have to <laughs> make accommodations i can't think of a better word then you know which means they have to make adjustments they can't put everybody in the same box they got to get all these rooms uh i've heard about accommodations and you know if you can get them go get them i'm not saying not to get them but accommodations where people ta are taking the test over two days instead of one you know there's all sorts of things that now the lsac has to account for it'd be so much easier if everyone was doing the same thing so I'm sure it's it's a it's a hassle. It's an administrative hassle. I can't and wait till everybody starts bringing their service animals with them. <laughs> I mean, that probably already people are oh, allowed they do, probably I'm sure. to do. And by the way, I know I have known people. I had a girl in my class one time who brought who had like a she had some trauma in her life previously, and she had a little tiny little dog that like went around everywhere with her in her purse. Yeah, and the dog never made a peep, and it was like totally perfectly fine. And I am not like mocking people who have legitimate needs for you know a service animal i just am talking about all the people who take like their pets with them on the planes now you know just 
right and left because it's so easy to get that like service animal notification. Mm-hmm. People yeah. taking service pigs on the plane and stuff. Is this like is this like people trying to get medical marijuana? Exactly. Or? It's exactly like medical <laughs> marijuana. Which is also really, really stupid. I mean, I'm not saying don't go get your medical marijuana card. I'm just saying it's not like really a legit. It's just, it's come on, it's silly. Yes. The rules are what they are, and you should take advantage of them if you can. Shit, yeah. It doesn't mean the rules don't suck. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yep. In basketball, um, you know, there's five fouls. You get, you get to have five fouls in a game. You get to commit fouls in basketball. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, if you don't commit those fouls, you know, if you if you finish the game and no one ever, you never get a foul called on you, then you're not doing it right. You know, you're supposed to bend the rules and yeah. get called for fouls sometimes. No, wait, what's the penalty for when you get? Uh, this just reveals my ignorance about basketball, but uh, in some cases you can shoot free throws, right? In other cases, you yeah, get it's like the an ball escalating. Transfer? It's an escalating series. Like depends on the context, right? If some, but okay. but there are there are times when you. A foul is absolutely 100% appropriate. Like, some guy is driving for a layup and, you know, he's going to score two points. Mm, but you might you as well can, take the chance. You can hack him. Well, you can even know you're going to get called for a foul, right? But you yeah, hack yeah. him. It's one of your five fouls. And now he has to go shoot two free throws, which he might miss. Yeah. Yeah. In that case, if you don't foul him, like, what are you doing? You have to foul him. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, if you've got accommodations on the SAT... Uh, you might as well just go right ahead and get accommodations on the LSAT as well. Your competitors will if you don't, so go do it. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's a, that the system makes any sense. I mean, <laughs> it's a very hard issue. Yeah. So last thing about the uh, September LSAT, a lot of people complained about the uh, fourth game, oh, yeah. uh, the virus game. I haven't seen the game yet, of course, although I don't feel like this is very surprising. It seems like over the last 10 tests, uh, LSAC has made efforts to create some sort of game that hasn't been seen before, and so it sounds like they did it again. Yeah, and um, I don't think anybody did well on it. It, From what I've heard, even my top students, it seems like they kind of ran out of gas halfway through the fourth game. Hmm. I heard maybe maybe one or two students who felt like they finished, but I think everybody reported that the fourth game was just kind of weird. Mm. There have been a lot of weird games recently, though. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that should be anybody any any kind of a surprise. Yeah, um, you know, I got a couple of the usual. Um, oh well, when I saw that section, I was just sure that it had to be the experimental section because it was so weird. You get, you get that from people, right? Which is like, dude, you haven't done enough prep, apparently, because they put weird games sometimes. Well, not only that, but even if it is weird, I mean, it's got the weird thing's got to start sometime. Why are you thinking it's not your test? Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, but I mean, and just if you've done all of the tests from the like, let's say you've done prep test all the games from like sixty through seventy-eight. Yeah, which would be you know, pretty much necessary, I would think, to be mm-hmm. adequately prepared for the test. You should yeah. do all of the most recent 10 or 20 tests worth of games, at least. Mm-hmm. And um, if you've done those 10 or 20 tests worth of games, then it's very obvious that they put weird curveballs in there. Mm-hmm. You're going to have encountered a bunch of weird stuff. So why are you like can't believe it when it happens on the day of your actual test? I don't know. Yeah. 
It'll be interesting. I'm excited to see that game now. See how hard it it really is. Yeah, I'm sure, it's hard. But I am not sure that it's that hard. I mean, they're again a hundred percent of the information is on the page, right? It's all right there for you. Um, yep. You just have to unlock that system and see the way the rules combine with one another. And um, no, I mean, I, I feel like some of the curviest, <laughs> curviest curveball curveballs you know some of the curveballs are actually some of the easiest games so mm-hmm. it yeah i mean it wouldn't surprise it's game four so we could presume that it's probably the hardest one um but it doesn't necessarily have to be hard just because it's strange right there yeah it's possible that it was just like oh once you see kind of how it works then it's just a lot simpler than than you might have thought look for example you remember the game about the, the people choosing offices, right? Yeah. That's a very recent game where people were, there were four people choosing offices. And people mm-hmm. thought that game was impossible. Yeah. And it, as, it, as it turns out, that system is actually really pretty easy to understand. You know, I think one of the challenges with that game, speaking of it, is the fact that uh, you don't really create a diagram. I, at least I don't. Correct. No, no, not any. Di- I made no diagram at all last time I taught that game. And so, yeah, that's weird. That's a curveball for sure. Yeah. And I think people are, they feel like they must or they're missing something. And that wasn't true with that game. And I don't feel, uh, I actually ended up creating a small diagram. For, do you remember that one about the. The work pieces. Uh, there's the work pieces. That one I didn't do any diagram. I did create a, a shell for that. I also created somewhat of a structure but ended up not using it for the one that's about the news pieces and the slots. Do you know what I'm oh, talking about? Interesting. Wait. The features. You had to have yeah, like features right. and mm-hmm. there's things like that. But it's like you kind of write out the five slots and then that's it. You're like, hmm, okay. Everything else is just right. sort of in your head. And I guess just being aware that – that may be the kind of game you're looking at. And maybe, who knows, for viruses, maybe there's something to draw for viruses. I'm not saying anything about that. But if you're aware of the fact that it is completely legitimate to do some games, not very many, but some without much of a drawing, then you can have the confidence to plow ahead and start getting your mind wrapped around it without just panicking and saying, well, I don't have anything written down, so I must not know what's going on. I can't wait for it. Yeah. Uh, so we have a we have an email from Greg, cool. and Greg just took the September LSAT, which we've been talking about so fondly. And as he says, my pre law advisor told me that the consensus is that the most recent test, the September test, was quote unusual. Have you guys heard this as well? What could it mean for the future of the LSAT? I'm planning to take the December test, which is the next one. And I don't want to be caught off guard. Wait, so did he end up taking this? No, you know, he says he postponed oh, it. Oh, he postponed it. Yeah, okay, I saw that, and I was. So he's just worried God. because his questionable pre-law advisor. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, the consensus is that it was unusual. I don't think so. Consensus well, according is, to whom? What does that even mean? I mean, yeah, the game, the fourth game was probably new and maybe unchartered territory, but that itself is not unusual. That's 
usual. In fact, it's probably a little surprising when all the games are nice and everybody's yeah, like, oh, right. wow. I had a nice game section and things went well. I think that's what happened in the June 2016 LSAT, which made it a slightly easier test, I feel and, like. Yeah, and then once again, by the way, people, you need to not just have one test date on your calendar. You know, you've got to be thinking about having a backup plan and, and potentially two backup dates because, yeah, June 2016 games, if that was the test, I can't remember which one's which, but... June 2016 could have been really easy, and September 2016 could have been really weird. And yeah. December 2016, we don't know. And But I, I am pretty certain that if you take three tests in a row, one of them is going to be a pretty manageable section of games. That seems to be how it goes, right? Yeah. So, you know, for these people who just have the idea that they're only going to ever take the LSAT once, I feel like you're shooting yourself in the foot. Mm-hmm. This actually goes, so bottom line is I don't think the test has changed. In fact, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. If anything, the test is changing at a snail's pace and will remain functionally the same for the foreseeable future. But that means that it's unpredictable from test to test to test, right? I mean, the the tests, the games especially do change in difficulty, but that's a constant. It's a constant that they change. Yeah, it's a constant they change, but even that change we're not talking about is very significant, right? I mean, it's still going to be a game that you can figure out if you think about it and so on. Yeah, and I'm sure games one through three weren't hard. or They were the same, ordering, grouping, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So, Greg, don't fear. Embrace change. <laughs> the little that there is on the LSAT. Yeah. Celebrate the little bit that changes from test to test. And maybe you take it in December and things go well and you call it a day. Or they don't and you take it in February and you apply maybe for the next cycle. Yep, perfect. So this goes into the next question because in the next question, this email is from, who knows, Anonymous for now. And somewhere in here, it's he asked about the consistency. He says, finally... We can go back to his other question, but right now he says, finally, any thoughts on consistency? I can never seem to put in my best performance on all four sections at the same time, it, so it sometimes feels like I'm playing whack-a-mole when I'm trying to shore up my weak, weak areas and score. Uh, this is super common, by the way. Almost everyone experiences this. They, they do poorly on reading comp or whatever. And then they maybe even focus on it that week. And the next week they do better in reading comp, but then all of a sudden their LR scores drop a little bit or their game scores drop from what it was before. And they feel like I think that it has something to do with them. And although it certainly could, I think it has a lot more to do with the fact that the test uh, changes, <laughs> not significantly, but the difficulty of each section varies a little bit from test to test. I think the overall test is going to be the same difficulty, but the games may be a little bit easier, but then the overall test is the same because the LR picks up and makes it a little harder. Yeah, I I agree with that. The test itself does change. Also, you know, I, I don't think really people ever get consistent. I, I don't think there's really such a thing as consistency on the LSAT until you start scoring 175s all the time. Um, yeah, that's true. There's this idea of what does constitute consistency, right? Like if someone's score dropped 10 points, I'd be like, hmm, well, what happened? Uh, but if, they're, if, if, if they get minus 
two in logical reasoning one week and then they get minus five the next week. They're like, oh, this week was so much worse than last time. And I'm thinking, eh, three questions. I don't know. It doesn't seem that much different. It's very possible that you know some things played in your favor before and they played against you now, And but this is all like where you're at. Yeah, I mean, this student is defining consistency as I want my best performance on all four sections at the same time. Yeah. You know, and that's just, that's not consistency. I mean, you're, look at, look at your logical reasoning average of the last 10 tests or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that, that average score is what you would get, you know, if you were consistent. I don't know. (laughs) Like, oh, I just want to do, if I just do the best I can, if I just get minus, you know, I sometimes, I got one test, I got minus two on the logical reasoning and another test, I got perfect on the games and another test, I got minus three on the reading comprehension. And if I put all those together at once, I get a 175. Well, I know, but that's just like picking out all of your best performances and saying, I want all of that, and then I'm going to be consistent. I don't yeah. know. That's a weird definition, I think, of consistency. Yes. No, it's an excellent point. It's like you have a bell curve, and this person is basically choosing <laughs> the top end of that bell curve every time, whereas in reality, you should be picking the, the top of the of the curve as opposed to the yeah. the. the the, the unusual stuff or the unlikely scenarios. In my experience, when people are complaining about inconsistent scores, it's almost always just, hey, you're not good enough at the test yet. And, you know, people, I, I get, there's a weird thing where students think they're better at the test than they actually are, right? Like, they do a section of logical reasoning and they, um, you know, they attempt 23 questions and they get 20 right. And I'm like, oh, wow, great job. That's awesome. You know, cool. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, yep, I've got, lo- I've got logical reasoning nailed down now. And they just think they own it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, wait a minute. I mean, let's look at your last test or the test before that. And let's look at the next test and let's see how good you really are at logical reasoning. It's not enough to just do it once and then say, okay, I'm awesome at logical reasoning now. Because mm-hmm. I'll have students who are just be like, oh, well, I got that section nailed down. I'm just going to work on these other sections. Yeah. <laughs> and then they wonder why they're like, they go back and they say, oh, I stopped working on logical reasoning for a little while. And then on the next section, I missed eight. I missed eight. And it's like, I don't even think it has anything to do with the fact that you weren't working on logical reasoning. I mm-hmm. think it has to do with you just weren't that good at logical reasoning to begin with. Yeah. So, you know, for consistency, I would just say, yeah, keep practicing, you know, <laughs> keep grinding it out. Yeah. You know, uh, one thing to add to what you're saying there, that book that uh, I've been reading, Make It Stick, uh-huh. uh, talks. it's all about studies on learning and so forth. And one thing that is interesting is not only what you're saying, that people uh, tend to think that they know more than they do, uh, but that trend, and this isn't going to be surprising in hindsight, but that trend is worse for people who know less. So the the more poorly you perform on the test, the more likely it is that you think you understand it, which is, you know, a little bit of a paradox because your score is saying that you're not doing that well. But in these studies where they're asking people how well did they do and how well did they feel they did and the worse they did, the better they felt about their score. Hey, Donald Trump, how'd you do in the debate? <laughs> awesome. I did great. <laughs> Huge. Huge win. <laughs> Huge win. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I, I think it's a 
this happens in in class too. I mean, you've, we I think we've talked about this where we're we're working with people in one on one tutoring or in class or whatever, and some people who are scoring in the mid one seventies are coming in and they're saying things like, "Okay, I got the correct answer. I chose D. I think that B is wrong for this reason, but I still feel like." It could be right for this other reason. What's your thought on this? And we're having a discussion about a question that they got right. Yeah. And maybe it's a you know five-minute discussion, 10-minute discussion. And then I'll be talking with someone else, and they got 12 questions wrong in that section, including the one that I was just talking about with someone else who scored a lot better. And I'll say, do you have any questions about this section? And they're like, no, I, I, I pretty much understand everything. Yeah. And That's, it's like, yeah. Ugh. Dude, 100%. I highly doubt that. 100%. Yep. My best students ask the best questions. My best students are aware of the things they don't understand, right? Because they're actually understanding mm-hmm. enough of the test to like be able to really see where they don't understand. Yeah. And it's the students who are scoring 150 who, you know, it's weird how there's just some of them that are like cocky with their 150 and they think they've got it. They got it nailed down. They know everything. Yeah. <laughs> like never ask me any questions. I'm like, really? You're not going to ask me any questions? Okay. Yeah. And I think that would explain why so many people are obsessed with speed. Because they, they, they score, you know, 150 and they say things like, I understand it. I just can't finish it. I just can't do it fast. I just, and it's like, okay. I sometimes, I, I don't do this as much anymore. I think I was a little more uh, sassy before, but sometimes I'd say to people like, okay, well, uh, go ahead and take all the time you want on that test and tell me what you get when you come back, you know? Totally, yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's and, be honest. I usually say like, oh, so you got 100% of the questions that you attempted? You got them all right? Yeah. And then they're like, oh, no, I missed these three. But they're <laughs> easy. They're stupid mistakes. Well, it's like, <laughs> uh, okay, <laughs> get them right. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't want everybody should be cool with making mistakes, but if you have that mentality, you're missing something. And that's what you need. You're, you're blind to that. And we need to help you, like, kind of wake up, you yeah. know? It's kind of like the reason why my, with private tutoring, I'm, I'm leaning toward, I don't know what you think about this, but I'm leaning toward having, like, a kind of a minimum LSAT score before I'll work with someone one on one. Yeah. Because it's, it's unsatisfying for me to work with the 150 student who thinks he knows everything. You know, I'll have the 150 student who shows up for our tutoring appointments and all they want to do is tell me all the things they understand. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, they're not happy with their scores, but they're perfectly happy with their understanding of the test. You know, they got it all. They got, they got their strategies. They got their plan. They know exactly what they want to do but their score is not there. So they Mm -hmm. want to do private tutoring, but then they don't admit that they don't understand stuff. Yeah. Um, or, you know, or they want to argue with me and like try to tell me why B is actually a better answer than the credited answer D. At least there we can have a conversation. Yeah. But when they just show up with like, Oh yeah, I did, I did these tests and no, I figured everything out. I don't have any questions. I'm fine. It's like, okay, then what are we doing? Yeah. And it's, it is true that when you're paying me to work with you on the LSAT, you it's, it's better if you're already scoring 165 or 170, you know, the Mm -hmm. people who are scoring 170, 172, 
those are the people who can actually, I, I think, benefit the most from working with me. Yeah. Because then we can talk about the places where, you know, it's clear that you've got a really good solid handle on everything, but there's these few issues and we can, we can dig into those few issues and you're in a position where you can actually learn. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when, the, when I have the 150 private tutoring students, I don't know, I think they'd be better off in a class or with books or the online class or, I don't know, almost anything besides just working with me one-on-one. Yeah. No, that's, all, that's uh, how the conversation usually goes when I'm talking to someone who is asking what they should do. Like, should I do a class? Should I do tutoring? And it's like, well, where are you scoring? If they haven't scored anything yet, like maybe go take a test on Saturday and let me know what you got. Because if you're scoring, like you said, in the 150s, 140s, then we're going to spend a ton of hours, expensive hours, talking about things that you will learn about in class. And everything you need to hear in class, or everything you hear in class is things that you need to hear and learn. Yeah, and I'm, I suppose if you've tried a class and it didn't work or something, like if you really feel like you did the work, Mm-hmm. And it just didn't click for you. I mean, I, I sure. I'm, there's some people who are just one-on-one learners, I suppose. Well, one-on-one is is still better than class. I think that's even if you're in the 140s because you're working individually with someone at your pace, exactly with whatever you're struggling with. But is it a good use of time and money? I don't know. I mean, I guess that's kind of a thing. If you have unlimited money, I mean, yeah, I like money. But I, <laughs> I, you know, it, but I, I end up talking people out of it so often. I mean, I just end up all the time saying, "Hey, I think you'd be so much better off in a class. You're, you have the same issues as everybody else in the class. We're going to talk about all of these your these same things. We're going to talk about those in the class or yeah. read these books." Cool. So uh, this person did have enough, or did, does have a question about timing. I think he said he was scoring in the one or average around 170, right? Okay. And um, his highest score was a 173, if I remember correctly. It's not here now. But one of his concerns is finishing the test on, on time. And he says that when I finish the test in a comfortable time, I tend to do so with high accuracy and confidence. But there are other times when he doesn't finish and he thinks it's when he spent too much time on the earlier questions and then had to kind of rush on the later questions. And so in order to make sure that he has enough time to answer these last questions carefully, he wants to know, quote, should I focus on speed in the early to middle part of the test and come with up with an approximate loose overall timing plan like suggested in Manhattan LSAT and others, or continue to focus on accuracy and familiarity so that those earlier questions go faster. He knows that focusing on timing can be problematic, but I'm wondering if I'm not working fast enough by trying not to make a big deal out of it. It's one of the last consistent obstacles that I've had, blah, blah, blah. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, you know what I'm going to say. I I don't feel like you should ever be trying to go quickly through the earlier questions. I feel like you should be so good at those earlier questions that you naturally go quickly through them. I feel like you should they should feel easy to you 
because you're going slowly and carefully and they just seem easy and the correct answers are jumping off the page and the wrong answers look really, really wrong, you know exactly what you're looking for, you find it, you pick it, you move on, and it's not because you're trying to do the, you know, I've heard people say like, well, I'm just going to do the first 15 questions in 15 minutes so that I can then have time to do the later ones. I don't, I just, that just seems stupid to me. Yeah, I don't think that we necessarily disagree, but I I do find that some people are overthinking easy questions and they're just not relaxing enough or something. Well, like for for example, maybe when people are trying to make a case for a wrong answer, you know, like that's overthinking, right? Where it's like, Mm -hmm. Well, I found this other answer over here that looks really great, and I don't quite understand this one, but I'm going to sit here for five minutes and try to make it make sense. Mm-hmm. That is what I would call overthinking. And, and being, you know, in that case, yeah, listen, you knew what you were looking for. You found it. This is it. Like, this is the answer. Mm-hmm. Why are you, you don't, I don't necessarily even understand the wrong answers every single time. Mm-hmm. Right, I'm I'm happy to say, huh? This that's a that looks like a big mess. Probably not the mm-hmm. answer. Move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think in this in his case, uh, if he's scoring in the 170 to around the 170s, I suspect that if he's going too slow in the earlier ones, he's probably not being as confident in his answers. Given too much credit to the wrong answers. You know, giving too much credit to the answer choices generally, yeah, and and not doing it on a higher that higher plane that we're always looking for. You're, when you're reading the question very thoroughly, you know, you really have a good handle on the argument. You know what the question's asking for. You make a good prediction. Then you should be able to go through and disrespect those answer choices pretty strongly, right? It should just mm-hmm. be like, well, no, 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 yes, no. That's how it should feel. Yeah. I mean, so I guess if if I was going to go faster at all, I would certainly tell him to go faster in the answer choices. Mm-hmm. But I worry as soon as people start saying, well, I have, I have to do the first X questions in Y minutes, then mm-hmm. I start getting very concerned that the student is going to be rushing through the argument. Mm-hmm. And if they do that, then they're just going to be screwed. Yeah, I agree. So that's it for the for the questions that we have from listeners. Do we want to jump into the June 2007 test? Yeah, it's been a while since we've done uh, some actual logical reasoning on the show. So uh, let's get that. That's the June 2007 LSAT. If you want to play along at home, you can just Google it. And yeah, we are in section three, which is a logical reasoning section. And we are on question five. Uh, do you want to read this? Okay, here we go. Uh, this is June 2007, section three, question number five. And Atrans says, an early entomologist observed ants carrying particles to neighboring ant colonies and inferred that the ants were bringing food to their neighbors. Okay. 
that would be one explanation for why they're carrying these particles. Yeah. By the way, I think you should be seeing this in your mind. If not, you're reading too fast. It should be this is something that's super easy to picture. You have two colonies, ant colonies, and ants are carrying things from one to the other. Yeah, and I, I feel like Atrins comes with the like very generous um, interpretation of what's going on here. <laughs> very altruistic. I did not know that insects were quite so generous to their neighbors. Yeah, so it, yeah, this is I mean, this is so interesting because I, I feel like most people don't even think about this. This person, this etymologist, is uh, making an argument and drawing some sort of conclusion and you should be reacting to it and thinking about why it could be reasonable i mean i don't think it's unreasonable but i also think there are plenty of other conclusions that could be drawn here and there's a lot of things that we don't know like like are these neighboring colonies uh their neighbors or are they actually all part of the same colony i don't know i mean who knows well, it's a fact that this happened, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's a fact that the entomologist observed ants carrying particles from one colony to the neighboring colony. Yeah, that's true. I think true. that's a fact. That's but fair. But then when it says, and inferred that the ants were bringing food to their neighbors, it's a fact that Atrin's, uh, it's a fact that the entomologist made that inference. Yes. But that inference doesn't have to be true. Mm-hmm. It's a premise of the argument that the entomologist made that inference. Yeah, But just because the entomologist thinks that's what's going on doesn't mean that that's what has to be going on. And there are a million other possible explanations, like what if they're bringing their poop to the Mm -hmm. neighboring colony and dumping it down the entrance of the colony? (laughs) It'd make for a good Pixar movie. That seems much more like what insects would actually probably do. Yeah. I mean... I, what, what? They're bringing food to their neighbors? Wow. Yeah, and I think it's right that we have, we're already on the right track, right? Because we have recognized that this entomologist is making an inference that is not necessarily justified. Yep. Thinking about possible alternate explanations. This, there's causation here, right? This is a, it doesn't mm-hmm. say cause and effect, but the entomologist is saying, hey, the cause of you bringing these particles to neighboring ant colonies is that you're you're, you know, you're, you're, the reason why you're doing that is because you're bringing food to the neighbors. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, what about any of the other different causes? They could be bringing poison to their neighbors. Mm-hmm. Okay. Further research, however, revealed that the ants were emptying their own colony's dumping site. Huh. Well, you predicted that one. Well, yeah, I didn't mean... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is there a vague memory of this in the past maybe no but i mean i would when i read dump when i read dumping site I, i'm actually not thinking about poop well who knows what that is but it is waste right they are taking dead bodies or garbage or you <laughs> know bodies. yeah dead bodies dude that's what i mean ants carry around the other dead ants all the time yeah yeah that's true okay, okay. so there this is the further research says nah they were emptying their own colony's dumping site Sure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we both read that and go like, oh, yeah, well, that seems pretty sensible. Mm -hmm. Thus, so here comes the conclusion of the argument. Thus, the early entomologist was wrong. And at that point, I don't know about you, Ben, but I would have to switch teams again. 
have switched teams. Yeah, you have to say, okay, we thought that the entomologist was an idiot, but now we have to think that you're an idiot because it's not like the entomologist was definitively wrong. Maybe just not entirely correct. Yeah, we have to push back whenever we can, and especially we have to push back on the conclusions of these arguments. Hey, so quick pause here for a second. Would you say that the official, uh, not that we shouldn't talk about religion, but uh, I don't know, the official religious position of any true LSAT test taker should be agnosticism? Um. Sure. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm not trying to be controversial here, but basically like that is the underlying tenet, right? Unless it's proven, we're going to take, we're just going to be the devil's advocate and say, well, okay, so you were going on this side, you're going in this one direction and you didn't quite prove it. So we're going to say you're an idiot. And then the other person takes the opposite position and we say, whoa, you're an idiot because you didn't prove your position. So unless a position is proven, we're always going to be unsatisfied. And we're going to say, you just don't know. If we want to talk about the religion thing, I mean, I'm an atheist. And I used to say agnostic until I read some Richard Dawkins make a, made a pretty good case about why atheists, if you really believe, or if you, if you think that God is not the most reasonable hypothesis, it, you, that you really probably shouldn't call yourself an agnostic, and instead you should actually just say, hey, I'm an atheist because I'm allowed to. Is he to. making that from a probability standpoint? Um, I don't remember. It was in The God Delusion. Um, I have that book around here somewhere, The God Delusion. I really liked it, but it was, it was just, it was, uh, I'm not shy at all about just going ahead and saying I'm an atheist, and I do actually say it in class per- fairly frequently that the reason why I'm good at the logical reasoning is that I'm an atheist. That or <laughs> you could talk about the chicken and the egg there, but um, yes, I am open to evidence. I'm a reality-based, rational person, and I'm not going to just buy anyone's bullshit or dogma. And the to get off the religion thing, um, I like to think about being mercenary. How about that? Right. Think about okay, yeah. think about a lawyer. You're the best lawyer in town, and some shit just went down. You know, <laughs> you aren't anyone's attorney yet, so you get to decide who you want to work for, and you should be able to read both sides of the argument, see both sides, make the case both ways, and pick who you want to work for. Yeah, and so. I do absolutely think about that. On a question like this, I was totally calling bullshit on this entomologist. But when the conclusion then says, therefore, the entomologist was wrong, I would think, wait a minute now. What if that entomologist wants to pay me? You know? The entomologist deserves to have a defense. So how would you make that defense, Ben? Oh, well, I would say that... Let's look, well, let's look at the premise again really quick. It says, further research revealed that the ants were emptying, emptying their own colony's dumping site. And maybe the dumping site has food. Or maybe they were emptying their dumping site in this particular case, but in other cases they do bring food. So, Yeah, what is a dumping site? 
right? I mean, yeah. is that defined? Dump, dumping what? You could read that a lot of different ways. I mean, it could be poop, but it also could be food. Or it could be excess food, food scraps, mm-hmm. right? What, mm-hmm. if the, what if these ants, you know, they were out to like their fancy dinner and mm-hmm. they took home their doggy bags and they put it all in the dumping site. And then someone said, hey, guys, you know, we're never going to eat this stuff. Let's go see if we can give it. Let's go give it to our poor neighbors next door. <laughs> and they all feel really good about themselves for bringing their leftovers over to the other colony. Yeah. In that case, this early entomologist can actually be proven true, proven correct, without changing any of these facts. We just don't know at this point. I mean, their entomologists could certainly be wrong. Yeah, that would be the case. That would be the case we would like to make, though, right? I mean, that would be awesome. Wait, if, what would be awesome? Make if you're case? the entomologist, mm-hmm. and if we can prove that the ants were taking food from their dumping site... Oh, yeah. Or the, the, the dumping site includes only food. <laughs> the dumping site is food. Yeah. Yeah. If the dumping site is food, then the entomologist wins on these facts. Mm-hmm. So that's the ideal case if you're going to defend the entomologist. And I think it's worth thinking about that. I guess, I guess my point getting back to agnosticism is that you, unless you are compelled by the evidence to take a side, your issue should be, well, wait, maybe not. Absolutely. We don't know. Absolutely. I think you should almost never be nodding along, especially when you get to the conclusion. You should never be like, oh, yeah, this entomologist is definitely wrong. Because yeah. if, you, if you bought it here, then you don't know what's wrong with the argument. You're just like, oh, well, they were emptying their own dumping site, so of course it can't be food then. Yeah, so the entomologist was wrong. Yeah. And then you have just made the assumption of the argument. Yeah. Without realizing it. Then you don't know what you're looking for. And when it says, Art- or Atron's uh, conclusion follows logically if which one of the following is assumed, you're thinking, you should at that point think, oh, apparently this argument is making some sort of an assumption, but I didn't realize that because I bought the conclusion. You need to go out and figure out, you need to go back and figure out what is. Yeah, that's, that's an absolute, if that happens to you, when you, because yeah, when you see that question stem, that's a sufficient assumption question. And a sufficient assumption question doesn't make any sense unless there was some missing piece in the argument. There, you know, it can't be that the argument is already proven. There yeah. has to be something that was missing. And so I would definitely just go back up to the argument and figure it out. Yeah. Rather than just go get beat up by the answer choices. And that's where I worry if people are trying to push it on the speed you know, oh, I don't have time to go back and reread the argument. I got to get through these, you know, this is the first five. I got to get this mm. five, fifth, question five. I can't be hard. I got to go, I got to go through. Mm-hmm. And so then they start reading the, the answer choices and then they spend forever getting just battered back and forth by the answer choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you go back, you know, maybe if you didn't spot the flaw or you didn't spot the missing piece, maybe now you get a second chance to go back. And then what is the, uh, what's the missing piece here, Ben? Or how, how, what would you be thinking here on a sufficient assumption question? Well, so sufficient assumption, we're trying to prove that the early etymologist etymo- was wrong. We need to show that there's no way they could have been bringing food to their neighbors. So maybe something like uh, the dumping site never has food or ants who empty their own colonies' dumping sites 
are incapable of carrying food. I mean, it doesn't really matter as long as it prevents these ants from bringing food to their neighbors. Yeah, and I think the perfect answer would be um, ant dumping sites never contain food. Right? There you go. It's most reasonable. But it's anything that would basically prevent them from doing that. It could be much bigger than that, right? It could be like... Ants never carry food. Ants never carry food. Yeah. Um, No dumping site ever contains food. You know, not just with regard to ants, but no dumping site ever. In the world, human or animal or Right. Food has never been dumped in the history of the world (laughs) or something like that. Food doesn't exist. Yeah, that would work. Sure. Yep. Yeah, that's the thing about sufficient assumptions that people need to get their minds wrapped around on. I, I, I think because the word sufficient sounds like just enough. Like when I say, oh, there was sufficient food, I think people interpret it as like, there was just enough food. No, at, no. There you know, could Thanksgiving. Be more than enough. Right? Yeah. Like Thanksgiving. Yep. So it's it's enough or more than enough. And so if you ever say to yourself, this answer just seemed too extreme or too strong, that's good for necessary assumption. It's really bad for sufficient assumption. That's not yeah. the reason to get rid of something. Necessary is like one scrap of bread, at least one scrap of some sort of sustenance once a year. Mm-hmm. That's necessary or else you're dead, right? Yeah. Sufficient yeah. is like Thanksgiving dinner 10 times every single day. Mm-hmm. That would be more than sufficient, but sufficient can be more than. It's totally fine to have a big, huge answer choice for sufficient. Yeah, because if it is more than sufficient, it actually is sufficient. You've satisfied whatever yeah. you needed, plus more. Making this prediction, I mean, the correct answer is just is like, I can see it. It's like glowing on the page. Oh, have you? Lo- I haven't even looked down yet. Yeah, I, gl- I like glance, just like look right at it. Okay. Well, let's let's go through these, and uh, some of these I can tell are already going to be enter- entertaining. Sure. So A says, ant societies do not interact in <laughs> all the same ways that human societies interact. Okay. Uh, <laughs> great. Yeah, it, it, it may be it's necessary. Because it's not a huge stretch to say human societies bring food to their neighbors. I mean, that's like a obvious fact. Yeah. And so they can't interact. If you're going to say that they didn't bring food to their neighbors and they can't interact in all the same ways. But it's not like humans do it all the time. And this conclusion is yeah. just about this instance. Yeah. Anyway, A A might be close to necessary, but it's certainly not sufficient. Cause it Wait, let's, let's, let's hang out with A and, okay. and think about it and try to make it correct. And just spend a lot of time here. I think that'd be a good use of time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, and that's exactly what I think people do when they're, if they're, oh, yeah, if you're overthinking A, yeah, that's, um, no, I mean, it's a sufficient assumption question. Yep. We have a very good prediction. I want an answer that says the dumping site doesn't contain food. Yeah. And, And A doesn't come close to saying that. So how is A the right answer for this sufficient assumption question? Sufficient assumption questions are super, super predictable. So you should know the answer going in, and then A should just be like an easy, nah, come on, next. Okay, B says, there is only weak evidence for the view that ants have the capacity to make use of objects as gifts. 
Okay. So maybe this etnomologist was right. <laughs> I mean, weak evidence is still evidence. This is not doing anything good for us. Yeah, I mean, you could you could say it's yeah, yeah, you're right. So I guess it could be a bad strengthener or it could be a bad weakener. But yeah. it's certainly not a the perfect answer, which is sufficient assumption questions, they require the perfect answer and you should know what the perfect answer is. Yeah. And and B's just not doing it. C says ant dumping sites do not contain particles that could be used as food. Boom. Yeah. It just it's like too easy. Yeah. Uh, if that's true, then the conclusion of the argument is proven that the early entomologist was in fact wrong. Yeah. D, the ants to whom the particles were brought never carried the particles into their own colonies. Oh my gosh. We don't care about those freaking ants. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the case for D is like, well, if it was food, they would have brought it into their own colony. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, it, you know, it's, uh, no, it's a, maybe it's a very weak strengthener. E, the entomologist cited retracted his conclusion <laughs> when it was determined that the particles the ants carried came from their dumping site. Okay, well, why doesn't that prove that the entomologist was wrong? Um, well, why does it prove that the entomologist was wrong? You know, like, just because he, he took it back, but he could have still been right in the first place. Yeah, he could be fearful of his conclusion, but his conclusion was ultimately correct. Yeah. I think this actually happened to Einstein, right? He added a constant to his equation and then regretted it. And he added it in part because of the pressure that this must not be an accurate reflection of reality, his uh, theory of relativity. What, it was like E equals MC squared plus 2? No, uh, the formulas themselves are actually a lot more complicated in terms of uh, relativity and how they predict uh, things about the universe. I wish I understood them. But when he came up with it, everyone was like, wait a sec, this, your, your formula does not account for the amount of energy that's in the universe. And uh, so, or at least the amount of energy that we think should be there. And he was like, yeah, you're right. Okay, so I need to tweak my formula by adding a constant. Basically just saying everything I just said plus, you know, three billion, trillion, whatever right. tons of matter. I, I don't even understand it uh, at all. If someone could uh, email us. But if he us, only did that, if you don't, no, please don't email me. <laughs> or email Ben. Oh, I'm actually curious. Time. Email to me, <laughs> Ben at strategyprep.com. But in any case, uh, he added this constant, and then it's like, okay, now it a now his, his formula conforms with what everyone thought the universe should be, and then later they're like, oh, wait a sec, that matter isn't there the theory was initially correct and he said it was the biggest mistake of his career to add that constant. So you can back away from your conclusion, but conclusion, your conclusion was still right. Gotcha. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm sure that like, you know, when, when, uh, what was it? Galileo or whatever is basically being burned at the stake for saying that the <laughs> earth goes around the sun. I'm so glad I was born in. Yeah, no shit. For anyone who's curious and now living in 2016, my goodness. Yeah, if if he if he could have been, um, you know, retracting his. Oh, never mind. I didn't mean it. You're right, guys. The Earth totally doesn't. You're right. 
the sun goes around the earth, <laughs> uh, you know, and he's doing that to save his life. But that doesn't mean he was wrong just because he retracted his statement. Yeah. Right. I mean, I could say that religious people are delusional and hey, then I could take start it losing back listeners, because I don't want to lose listeners. So I could take it back and I could say, oh, yeah, never mind. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't right in the first place. Yeah. Oh, on that note. You can uh, always email us questions, help at uh, thinkinglsat.com comes to both of us. If you look at thinkinglsat.com, you'll see uh, our editor, Andy Black's awesome show notes. Those are always kind of entertaining to read. You can tweet us at thinkinglsat. You can tweet me at nfox. Thanks for listening. Please tell a friend. Give us a uh, five-star rating, maybe a review on iTunes. That really helps. People uh, wouldn't find the show if it wasn't for you rating and reviewing and spreading the word. So thank you for doing that. Anything else yeah. we need to add, Ben? Uh, I just wanted to say thanks to everyone who volunteered to help review videos. It, a ton of people actually responded. I need to thank them all directly, but uh, at least indirectly through the show. Thank you. It's been super helpful. So uh, I don't know if I said this, but there's like 3,500 or something now videos in my crazy YouTube account and trying to sort through them all is a little overwhelming, but uh, we're making progress. So Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And just thanks everybody for generally listening. This is a very gratifying project we've got going here and it's awesome to hear from listeners. Um, so keep the emails coming. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs>